What's up, Bruin Bible listeners? This is your host, Will Decker. I uh, wanted to reach out and say thank you guys for all the listens, all the love. We see it on social media. We see it on YouTube. It has been sensational. And we want to encourage you guys, if you guys are enjoying the podcast and liking it, that you guys subscribe and like it, uh, whether it's on YouTube, on our UCLA LAFB channel, or the Bruin Bible, uh, to subscribe either through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, however you guys listen and react to it because it's going to allow us to do much greater things in the future. We're creators. We want to be giving the best Bruins content to all of our UCLA listeners. The only way we can do that is if we have a fan base that is locked in and helping us out. So we appreciate you guys. We love you guys. If you guys have been liking it, please help us out with a like and subscribe. What is up and welcome to Sunday morning recap of UCLA against Arizona State. Maybe the toughest loss I've experienced since covering UCLA in this platform, a 17-7 to uh, game where UCLA had 183 yards of total offense. 0 for 4 on those fourth down conversions just looked lifeless out there. And it's time to kind of come to the conclusion where we're going to be living most likely. You know, who knows what happens if he does beat SC, does beat Cal, and maybe gets a good bowl game and wins it. There could be an alternative where Chip does stay. But as somebody that, you know, covers the team and has opinions about what goes on within UCLA football, I'm at the point where I've seen enough. I'm ready for a change. And I think that's where we got to start this podcast at, Madman. Talk to me about your thoughts of last night's game. And, you know, I think I heard from last night. I saw your tweets. I saw what your emotions were like. I think you've kind of come on to the, you know, the Chip Kelly. It's time for him to leave as well, my man. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to save that for later, Will. I, I want to have the harder conversations first. I think that the easier conversations of beyond Chip Kelly, that's easy stuff. I want to have the hard conversations first. And and that is, you know, last night was, um, you know, really tough to watch. And you said it best. I, I think the word really that comes to mind was lifeless. And you, you just saw uh, you know, I words can't really describe, uh, you know, what I saw last night. I can't I still can't really explain it when you when you talk about a team, you know, forget the two and seven Arizona State one and five in the Pac-12. But they had a, a, a running back play quarterback and they had a tight end play quarterback for, for most of that game. Their their offensive line was on the sideline for most of that game. I mean, it was basically a seven on seven, five on five flag football game out there. And, you know, a team that really couldn't field a full unit on offense and had to resort to all of these gimmicky formations and interesting formations and, and credit goes to Kenny Dillingham of, of having to sort of, you know, necessity is the mother of, of invention as the saying goes. And he just didn't have the horses to run kind of a traditional team out there and he had to do what he did. But uh, when, so credit to him, but when Cam Scadabo is is the quarterback and he's, He's throwing a 25-yard touchdown pass, and then he's also the punter, and then he's also running the ball. And then their tight end last night was all the big kid was also the quarterback. And and frankly, he he would get hit 
you know, he'd run to the left and get hit and then make a right turn and go right. And then I think the turf monster got him six or seven times in that game. I mean, so it was just a comedy of, of errors last night. Um, and so to see that team be able to come in and, and beat UCLA at home as a 17-point underdog and, you know, the 0 for 4 on fourth downs, Will, you, you said it best. I mean, at the two-yard line and then in the red zone again and then driving late in, in that game in the fourth quarter. Again, Carson Steele 0 for 3 with him. Uh, Shalee just didn't look like he was ready to play uh, and, and throw the ball uh, in terms of just reading defenses, reading progressions, putting touch on the ball. Every time he rolled out, he looked like he was rolling out wanting to run. He really just kind of abandoned his reads. Um, it just was a team that was lost out there on both sides of the ball. And, and it was sad to see the, the defense as well kind of lose steam over the course of that game. And it just is a team that right now is lifeless. And uh, it's hard to see that, that Chip Kelly's getting through to these guys. I think they've tuned him out. I think they've kind of quit on him. And uh, it's, it's so unfortunate. It really is, man. And it was a game where, regardless on what side of the fence you were on, you know, there was a lot of chip supporters still. There was people like myself who had kind of given up on him after the Arizona game. He needed to respond this week. He needed to assure the fan base, get back on track with a win. I think I would have been a lot more forgiving if he had run the table these last three games, got the win in the bowl game. You know, I could live with nine and three. Losing to Arizona State, where they were at, with, with you, what you were saying, man, Jalen Conyers, a tight end playing some quarterback, you know, uh, Scadaboo coming in playing some quarterback. That is just as an embarrassing as a loss as you're going to find with UCLA. And it was tough to watch, man. It was one of the most unwatchable football games I've ever seen. You know, it was, it was so rough. I was like, I thought to myself many of times, like, if I wasn't as invested as we are with UCLA football, I would have changed this in the first, like, yep. 10 to 15 minutes of the game. It was Brutal to watch. I thought the defense did as well as they could until they couldn't, right? You know, I thought they just gave it their all and they kept us in the ball game, but I think it just fell back onto the disunity we've heard, you know, with Olafemi Oladeja. They just knew the offense wasn't going to figure it out. That last touchdown, they kind of realized, you know, hey, it's, you know, they're in the red zone. I think something's going to happen here anyways. I don't know if we're going to – offense is going to have a chance. Not to say that they gave up, but I think there's a realism when it comes with, hey, the offense isn't moving the football. You know, this is a tough, tough situation to be in. So it was very difficult to watch that from afar. Um, does Chase Griffin, because I want to bring this up to you. I think the small spurts we've seen of Chase Griffin when he's been the quarterback for UCLA. I know he played against Oregon a couple of years ago. 2020, I mean, you look at the stats, six touchdowns, two interceptions, 65% completion rates. I've never thought Schley, and this is no disrespect to Schley, the person, the man, whoever he is, uh, it should have been, you know, out there starting for quarterback, you know, and I know Dante was recovering from a concussion. You had Ethan Garbers with an ankle injury. I, I totally get that. I think I would have liked to see Chase Griffin here, given everything he's meant to the program, the kind of leadership he's shown, what he's built, you know, with his NIL funds and stuff like that. And not to mention the small spurt and sample size we saw, he wasn't a bad quarterback. I mean, I, I think there's a chance where if Chase Griffin starts this game, we win. Uh, do you think that's a fair statement, given what we've seen from Chase in the past? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I love the point. I think Chip was probably thinking, hey, how do I set up? You know, you, you go into last night's game differently than you are this morning, right? And and I think that I think you and I, even in over the course of the week, it really never entered our minds to, to start Chase Griffin over the course of the week. 
because we were kind of thinking, okay, how does this team kind of right the ship for one game and then kind of get back on track a little bit? But it's an excellent point, Will. And frankly, I think given who Chase Griffin is as a leader, just such a bright future ahead of him, as someone who knows how to galvanize groups of people, what UCLA is really looking for these last two weeks of the season is ambassadorship. And I think there's no greater ambassador than Chase Griffin. If you give Chase Griffin the opportunity to start against USC, how symbolic where one of his final starts of his football career is against USC in the Coliseum. I promise you, he will galvanize that locker room. And even if there is disunity uh, taking place, he will find a way to galvanize that group and put a great effort forward against USC and then ultimately against Cal. I, I would close out the season starting Chase Griffin, Will. I think it's an excellent point because at this point, you're not even really looking for wins and losses. You're not looking for stats. You're just looking to end the season the right way with an element of competitiveness, with an element of representing the university, with an element of taking something to completion. And I think Chase Griffin is the embodiment of all of those things, professionalism, leadership, ethics, integrity, uh, never quitting, never giving up. And how fitting would it be if the UCLA's two biggest rivals, that being USC and then obviously the, the brother-sister school, the big brother and Cal, that it's Chase Griffin being the starter to close this thing out and make sure this team just maximizes its potential over the next two weeks. So I am pro Chase Griffin, Will, to start these final two games. Yeah, I think just what he's meant to the program, the small sample sizes we've seen, and just what he means to UCLA as a whole. You know, I think this guy is going to do fantastic things once he graduates. I think the opportunity is there for him to have some big moments for UCLA down the stretch. Madman, it was a tough, tough night, but we've actually come up with some coaching candidates we feel would be best served for UCLA moving forward. And I think it's going to be a situation where we've got Big Ten money, we've got a an attractive program. We've luckily gone to the Power Two or what the future will be of Power Two conferences. It's, it's as attractive as a job as it's ever been at UCLA, so I'm optimistic we can potentially get the right guy. Um, Madman, are you excited to maybe – open up the coaching candidate portal about maybe getting some new guys in here and representing the blue and gold for UCLA. Yeah, well, I think before we do that, I think it's important to, to share a couple of things. You know, one is this really saddens me that, that we're here and, and I understand we're here. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had a lot of conversation over the last couple of weeks with our fans, our viewers over Twitter, and, and it's been such fun engagement you know, what saddens me is that, A, you know, Chip really loved this university. And, and what I mean by that is I think a lot of people kind of get that confused with someone who's this super charismatic guy on the recruiting trail or the fire and brimstone speeches at halftime to sort of inspire people. I think we all agree that's not who Chip Kelly is. But when you talk about Chip's understanding of UCLA's place in society, uh, in terms of how he thought about his players when he would always say the four legs of a chair, academic, athletic, spiritual, and social, when he understood UCLA's commitment to education, to research, to service, to building great leaders in the community to really change the world. When, it, when he talked about UCLA you know, as, as, a, as a symbol of the number one public institution in, in the world and what that means in terms of just society, I really think Chip understood 
UCLA more than any other coach since Terry Donahue. And from an alum standpoint, I was so proud that Chip was the coach of this university and this football program as a result of that. And so that's really what I mean. I know fans have asked me a lot, what do you mean by the passion? Uh, because I'm not seeing the passion on the field. I'm talking about passion much more collectively in terms of his ambassadorship of UCLA uh, and, and the program. And so it's really sad for me that, that we're here. I, I, you know, I joked last night on Twitter, I was the last guy on Chip Island. And you know, I found a lifeboat off of the Titanic because I really believe that he had figured some things out in terms of strategically with the transfer portal, hiring younger coaches, obviously, uh, the, the success in the ground game the last several years, schematically in terms of kind of the zone read stuff. I really think he found something in terms of a long-term strategy, something UCLA had not had in, in three decades since Terry Donahue. But unfortunately, we've just come to a place here where the communication gap between Chip and his players, I think, is a chasm that's just too far to overcome. It's just too wide uh, to build a bridge on where for whatever reason... His players are just not responding to him anymore. And you can't move forward as a football program when that is the case. And it's very sad. And, and I think the other point, Will, that is important to share here before we kind of jump into the fun stuff of, of candidates, I do think all of the, the conversation still holds. UCLA has to have a conversation about what they want from their football program. And, you know, UCLA has to sit down as a university, athletic department, football coach, chancellor, even the regents, and sit down and say, what does success look like for football at UCLA? And we are in a world now, Will, where between name, image, and likeness, the professionalization of college sports, the transfer portal, just the amount of money and focus it takes to be great in a particular sport, the amount of financial resources, the amount of alumni resources, the amount of time that you have to put in, whether you're a booster or an alum or a supporter of this university, has never been greater. And when you think about UCLA, I don't think necessarily about USC or I don't think about Alabama or Georgia. What I think about when I think of UCLA is I think about Duke and I think about Kentucky and I think about Kansas and I think about North Carolina and I think we're in a world here moving forward where, yes, the Big Ten money is great, but the expectations of what money takes to be great in football is even greater. And I think we have to have a conversation on there needs to probably be a specialization where you have to put the vast majority of your resources in the sport that you believe you will be more successful in. And when you look at the Dukes and the Kentuckys and the Carolinas and the Kansases, you know, they look at their football program as hey, as long as they're winning seven, eight games a year, eight, seven, eight, nine games, every once in a while, they'll, they'll pop and have kind of a big year, but we're a basketball school. And I don't know if UCLA needs to sort of have that conversation because you can't spend on everything and sort of spend mediocre uh, in a situation. You have to really decide who you want to be. And so even before you know, we, they pick who the next coach is going to be, and I agree with you, there needs to be a next coach, that conversation needs to happen before you pick the next coach. Because if you don't have that conversation and you don't set up what success looks like, you're just setting up the next coach for failure, just like you did, you know, Chip in, in years past. I mean, at the end of the day, this is still a program 
that over 30 years has only had six top 25 finishes. I mean, this is by all indications, not a football school. So you, we have two choices. We either have to change that and that requires investment from the program, from the university, from alumni, from boosters, or we have to accept that and then put all of those resources into basketball. But there needs to be clarity around what UCLA is going to do moving forward. Well, and I think that's the tough conversation that the university needs to have with their fans, with everyone else involved. And so that's the first thing I want to see before the coach. But let's assume that happens and now we can kind of talk about the coach. But I think it was important for us to share that with our viewers. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, I think where it went wrong for Chip is I think the transfer portal has been so big for us. And I will always defend it for the, the wins we got out of there. Like, who says no to a Zach Charbonnet or a Liatu Latu? That front seven is made up entirely of transfer players. It's yep. the best front seven we've had in a long time. Where it hasn't worked is you got to bat like a thousand on the transfer portal. You got to bat a thousand, you know, especially with the way that we were utilizing it, right? Where we're getting 15, 20 guys in here every year. And we're matching that with a recruiting class that has traditionally like between 12 and 17 kids in there as well. So we knocked it out of the park with guys like the front seven. I thought we did a really good job. I don't think the offensive line plays allowed these guys to be the special players that we thought they could be. And J. Michael Sturdivant, Matavau, Kyle Ford, those type of guys. But the offensive line, you know, and I, I, I don't want to pick on any of these kids because these are kids at the end of the day. And I don't know if there's an NFL future for these guys. But, you know, we saw it in spring camp, man. I mean, we just didn't see any cohesion with the offensive line. And that was without DiGiorgio and Holstead, who we banked upon as being the two best offensive linemen for this team this year. And, you know, we've had guys come in from Oregon's and USC's on this offensive line to transfer, and none of these guys can really figure it out. And I thought for as good of a job as Tim Drevno did last year with, you know, maximizing Neo Mafia to be the player he is, to getting John Gaines to become an NFL draft pick, which I thought Gaines was a very solid player. NFL, I didn't know if that was in his future. He became a legitimate pick in the NFL draft. Raekwon O'Neal putting him on a pedestal. It left for a gaping hole in the offensive line, and it made me wonder, too, because we talked about this as well. When we were going to the Big Ten next year, our front seven, we had to reload, like, all of those positions because Latu's going – Murphy twins are going. Jay Toya would be a smart man if he tested the NFL draft next year. Wausau is going to run out of eligibility next year. Oladejao is built like an NFL coach's dream out there, what he can do. So essentially, you're going to have to get four or five quality players in there through the transfer portal. And, you know, you may have a guy in Grant Bucky who's a USC defensive end uh, that, you know, committed to USC, came to UCLA. But you've got to knock it out of the park every single year with the transfer portal. I think it just became too much of an issue where even if you have one glaring deficiency, it became so big that it cost UCLA its promise. And, you know, I think, I think it's been over since we can't get an offense generated with Chip Kelly, you know? And I think that's, that for me is when I realized it was over because that is his bread and butter. That's his calling card. He's always been known for his electric offenses. We've been accustomed to learning about the defense, whether it was under as an arrow, Bill McGovern built something up there, you know, may he rest in peace, but at the end of the year, it kind of collapsed. I think we can all agree on that. And then this is the year we finally got the good defense, man. We finally got a defense that is special, that is top 10 in a multitude of different categories. 
And this is the one year you can't get the offense right. Yeah. The one year you can't get the offense right. Yeah. So it's just- I mean, unfortunately, Will, you know, it all, on offense, it was also losing DTR, losing Charbonnet, losing yeah. Bobo, losing Kaz, losing the three offensive linemen. So it wasn't like <laughs> it was the same offense coming back, you know, with, with that defense and, and it laying an egg. But no, you're absolutely right, Will. And and I think the, the earlier point is an even greater one about, the need to have to bat a thousand in the transfer portal. And, you know, part of that is also given the four year, the high school recruits, and we've talked about this a bunch over the years, the academic requirements being harder at UCLA than other universities. And so you, you have to sort of supplement that with the transfer portal because you're not going to get everything that you need uh, from the high school guys. And it puts a lot of pressure on the transfer portal of, of you having to get it right. And at the end of the day, these are still 18 to 22 year old kids. You're the greatest recruiter, the greatest scout, the greatest eye for talent is probably going to bat, you know, 60 to 70%, you know, because you're still dealing with young kids here at the end of the day. But I think, Will, it also feeds back into that larger conversation, right? Like the, these are the academic requirements and, and restrictions. This is the need to rely on the transfer portal. You can't get it right every time. So again, what does the definition of success look like? What are we, what are we really trying to do here? And I hope those conversations will be had, but well taken, Will, on, on all points in terms of offense as well as, as, as the line play. Yeah, and I mean, I know we lost some of the best players we've had in program histories, record setters, DTRs, but if offense is your calling card, I got to see a little bit better than what we've seen throughout this year. And I think a lot of the fan base would agree on that. We've gotten our, you know, we've aired out our grievances with what has gone on with Chip. If we are to move into the right direction, now we can at least look forward to the future of what can potentially be coming through the doors of Westwood to the beautiful Wasserman Center, to the new conference of the Big Ten. There's a lot to look forward to if we are able to secure the right hire here. We've kind of given you an assignment coming into this week, Madman, about some coaches that you may believe would be good fits at UCLA. I've got three coaches myself that I think would be excellent fits when it comes to UCLA and what they're trying to project for the future. Um, do you want to lead us off as always, man? Cause I'm excited to hear your takes. I'm excited to hear where you believe uh, UCLA should be going towards uh, when it heads to the big 10 next year. Yeah. Well, I've got, I've got five, I've got five and a wild card, you know, that's, yes. those are sort of mine. Um, I think I'll start with kind of the obvious one, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get the obvious one out of the way. And that is Jonathan Smith of Oregon state. And just everything that Jonathan Smith has been able to build with a program much like UCLA that has its restrictions, right? I think that's one of the things as fans and, and as supporters of the, the program, we need to look at a couple of characteristics from coaches, guys who want to build, guys who want to be there long term, guys who know how to handle restrictions, doing more with less. And then guys that kind of think a little bit differently because they're put in a situation where they have to kind of go up against more of the traditional blue buds. I mean, I think those are the three characteristics that you're looking for. In addition to obviously folks that can relate really well to young people on field success, et cetera. And so for me, Jonathan Smith checks all of those boxes. I mean, when you look at Oregon state, the restrictions that they have in terms of financial resources, stadium market, all brand history, all of those things. And the fact that as, as a great alum, he's gone back and, you know, last year was a 10 win season this year. Everyone's talking about Oregon and Washington. Will Oregon state plays both of those teams. These last two weeks of the season, the PAC 12 still goes through Oregon state. They still have a chance to get to this PAC 12 title game. 
if they went out. So the fact that he's been able to create such a contender in the greatest year in the history of this conference speaks volumes. The fact that he was able to recruit really top-end running backs and, more importantly, guys on both sides of the line. Oregon State's been a really physical team the last couple of years, and if it wasn't for Utah, Oregon State would be recognized as probably the most physical team in the West Coast, and that's a testament to Jonathan Smith. And the trajectory has gone up every year. He's in year six, much like Chip. I think it's ironic, though, Will, that Jonathan Smith in six years at Oregon State is 34 and 33. And we're talking about him as being the number one candidate. And Chip yeah. in six years is 33 and 33. And, and we're talking about him about to go out the door. But it, it, it's a lot of it is sort of trajectory and, and where this team is going. So for me, Will, Jonathan Smith checks all the boxes. Second it. for me, Will, is Danton Lynn. And, and that is, you know, how can you take the, the, the up-and-coming star that you have in-house and can you sort of put him in a head coaching position and allow his tree to sort of stay on the defensive side of the ball and then go hire a really competent offensive coordinator and balance this team out? He's young. He's hungry. He's passionate. He relates to players. There's a different culture on this defense. I mean, what he's been able to do is nothing short of spectacular, Will. You and I have talked about it, a team that over the five, the last five years – has averaged to be about 75th in total defense over the course of five years, and here they are, a top-10 defense. Why don't you give this guy an opportunity to take over the head coaching position? He's so young, and then you put him with the youngsters like Jerry Neuheisel, Deshaun Foster, passionate folks like Ken Norton Jr., and then kind of bring in more of a seasoned offensive coordinator, someone who's a little bit older. That could be a really super recipe for success going into Big Ten play, Will. For me, the, 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 the other candidate is some of the guys that I think have had really on-field success the last couple of years as builders. One is Jeff Brom of Louisville. And when you look at what Jeff Brom has done this year at Louisville, 9-1, and one, he's really sort of set the stage for success for Louisville and the ACC. But it goes back to his previous two years at Purdue. You know, he was six years at Purdue, his final two years. He won 17 games over his final two years at Purdue, took Purdue to the Big Ten championship game against Michigan year before last. So Jeff Brom has, again, been able to show on-field success, being able to do more with less, being able to deal with the likes of the Ohio States and the Michigans and be able to find success that way. I also love Willie Fritz, Will, you know, of, of Tulane. And what he's been able to do, he's been a terrific coach for a number of years. He's a little bit older. He's 60. He's same age as Chip. But when you talk about 20 out of 23 wins at Tulane, 20 of his last 23, obviously the big Cotton Bowl victory where he outcoached Lincoln Riley in the Cotton Bowl last year. Tulane is now 8-1 and one again. The way he's been able to, again, take more with less, build a program that's flying under the radar. Really, really good football coach. I think Willie Fritz would really embody this university really well. And then my last candidate, Will, is David Shaw. And when you Ooh. think about David Shaw coaching at Stanford, what is the school that is so similar to Stanford in terms of academics, in terms of the, the ability to, to sort of represent the university well, uh, the ability to bring values, and what David Shaw could potentially bring to UCLA, I think would be absolutely significant. And being in a much similar environment as Stanford understanding kind of the hierarchy of the university, understanding the role football plays in that hierarchy, and just being such an incredible ambassador of, of men and people and, and being able to recruit and build, particularly in the trenches, which is what you need in Big Ten play. So 
to me, Will, those are sort of the five names that come to mind. And then if I'm playing a wild card, and if this, this would have to involve UCLA kind of stepping a little bit outside itself, but I think it would create an energy and a vibrancy, Will, in L.A. that has been missing the last couple of years, I'd call up Lane Kiffin. And I'd have Lane uh-huh. Kiffin. Wouldn't it be delicious to see Lane Kiffin come back to UCLA and try and stick it to SC every year after he got tarmacked from USC and kind of a Lane Kiffin, Lincoln Riley battle in LA and be able to bring those great athletes to UCLA again. I think it would take the university to kind of give him a little bit more rope in terms of what they want. But I think that could be something in, in a social media age, in a Big Ten age, to see Lane Kiffin play in, in some big games and coach it up because he's a terrific offensive mind. So those are my five and my one wild card, Will. I love it, man. And uh, just for reference, do you know where Jonathan Smith was born? Jonathan Smith, was he born in UCLA Hospital? Pasadena, man. Pasadena. Pasadena. High School. The one thing that scares me about Jonathan Smith, and I think it would be a perfect hire, home run, is he's an alumnus of Oregon State. Yes. Like, it means more when you're coaching yes. at the school that you played for. So yes. Yes, that absolutely would scare right. me a little bit. Uh, D'Anton Lynn absolutely deserves an interview if this does come to fruition. I want to keep the Malloys. I want to keep the Ken Norton Juniors on staff. I'd be very interested to see how his recruiting strategy would uh, progress forward, given that he's been an NFL guy. You know, this would be something that would be new to him. Ken Norton Jr. would obviously assist in that in a lot of ways, but that would be something I'd be looking at as a hurdle coming in that way. I mean, Lane Kiffin, man, my goodness. That would be fireworks in L.A. again. I mean, that would probably be the biggest hire since New Heisel came back. And as we often talk about, the billboards up in L.A. where there's a new, you know, sheriff in town or, you know, whatever he said on those billboards. Thriller, man. it's, uh, you know, you know the, the saying goes kind of mano y mano. It would yeah. be Visero versus Visero, <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I think that would be absolutely fireworks, Hollywood. You want to talk about putting juice into a market? If it were me and if I was running UCLA, I'd be calling Lane Kiffin. Yeah, man. I think Lane Kiffin is a great hire. I also love the Willie Fritz point. Jeff Brom at Louisville. I think both those guys have done incredible jobs. I got three names for you, and they're not a, a head coaches yet. Because I think when you look at the trajectory of Jarman, Jarman didn't hire Chip Kelly, but he has experience hiring at Boston College and some of these other places. He's often taken assistants and promoted them to head coaches where they have a role. So I want to kind of explore some of these guys. And the first guy that I came back with, a guy that made waves yesterday, for his post-game speech. Allegations, we're going to see what happens with that. But Sharon Moore is a guy that I am really circling. You know, I really trust the Harbaugh tree when it comes to coaches. We've seen it at Stanford. We've seen it up here. I mean, David Shaw is from the Jim Harbaugh tree, who you recommended in that last point. And what I love about this guy is he has built up one of the toughest offensive lines in the last three years. Not even hyperbole to say one of. They've won the Joe Moore Award the last two years, which is the nation's strongest offensive line the last two years. And they're likely going to win it again this year. And what has been the biggest problematic, you know, thing on the offense for UCLA this year has been the offensive line. They're tough. They run the football well. And I can't think of a better blend to go into big 10 football than, you know, getting the guy that's, you know, put Michigan at the top of that conference for the last two years. Sharon Moore is a guy that I have circled. He was an offensive lineman himself, you know, playing back at Louisville, then went and coached out there as well with Charlie Strong and then has really made his way back. 
with Michigan as somebody that I think would be just a home run fit, has done an awesome job recruiting, developing, and making sure that these guys are tough within the trenches. So I really, really love uh, Sharon Moore. The next guy I got for you, Ryan Grubb, the right-hand man to Kalen DeBoer, a guy that has kicked our ass time and time again while he was at Fresno State. And, at I mean, we didn't have to play them this year, but we beat Washington last year, which was awesome. But Grubb, when they inherited Washington, they were the 113th ranked passing offense. They have shot up to number one the last two years. If we were trying to get a dynamic offense going into the Big Ten, I like where Grubb is at, man. He has really taken that aerial pass to the next level. I would often compare it to the guy that we played across the line last night. Kenny Dillingham really elevated Bo Nix's career. What Ryan Grubb has done at you know Washington and elevating Michael Penix to a Heisman frontrunner I think has got to be talked about more. This would be a guy that I would really look at if I was looking at the assistants. Grubb has been sensational. It would allow us to get maybe more receivers in here that we feel are great fits for the program. And the last guy, I mean, speaking of receivers, is there a better receiver developer than Brian Hartline at Ohio State right now? This would be his first head coaching job. And I know he's coming from a receiver coach to a head coach, but you got to talk about those Ohio State connections, man. Jarman is in those, you know, he, he's got a lot of connections at Ohio State given his, you know, tenure there in Columbus. Hartline would be a great hire. You look at what he's done for the Chris Olaves of the world, the Marvin Harrison Juniors of the world, the, you know, Garrett Wilsons of the world. This guy knows what it takes to get good receivers. Can you imagine if UCLA started getting top-end receivers in a USC wide receiver town, Madman? I'd be losing my mind each and every week if we got some of these guys. So those are the three offensive guys. You kind of stole my defensive coordinator pick. I think De'Anton Lynn is more than fitting to get at least an interview at the end of this if it does come down that line. What do you think about those three candidates? Because I think as assistant coaches, those guys are blowing me away right now, and I'd be happy with all those interviewing for the job. No, well, I, I love the list, and I love the angle to go with the assistant coaches. So I think those three are all absolutely terrific and spot on with your picks. I'll, I'll kind of go one by one. You know, with more, what's interesting is – Last night, obviously, very emotional after that win against Penn State. And he's done a fa fantastic job in the trenches. I think the one thing that struck me, even outside of the points that you made, which are all correct about building uh, legitimacy in, in the trenches, is just the passion for Michigan and passion for the university. You know, when he said, these are the greatest alums, this is the greatest school, it, it, it's about being a Michigan man. And I think we need to get to a place where what it means to be a UCLA Bruin is first and foremost. And Bruin values and, and what the history, the pyramid of success and what the history of UCLA is all about is something that our coach absolutely bleeds. And I think that's the bigger takeaway for me with more than even his tremendous on-field success from an interior line perspective. I think the question will be, is he ready to kind of take the job? Uh, as the kind of the head man or does he need a little bit more polishing but certainly worth an interview no question about it I love the pick I think with Grub Will it's very interesting and I think that he's done a tremendous job with DeBoer I love the the emphasis I mean he was DeBoer's right hand man also at Fresno State I mean Penix Jr. has a little bit to do with them being the number one I mean that that's one of the great arms that I've seen but your point is so well taken and I completely agree with it where I actually see it could be very interesting, Will, is do you do you have a world where you make Grubb maybe the highest paid coordinator 
and you have the Anton Lynn as the coach and Grubb as the offensive coordinator? Or do you have Grubb as the coach and you really up the Anton Lynn salary and, and it gets kind of a little bit closer there? I think that could be a really lovely synergy between the two of them where you get offense with defense together. I love the Grubb selection as well. And then with Hartline, Will, I think you nailed it in terms of obviously not just his craft at the wide receiver position, but more importantly, his understanding of Big Ten country and his understanding of where to go to get really top-end skill guys. So, and, and the fact when you overlay that with Martin Jarman really being a Midwest guy, that's really where his roots are. I think all three of those, Will, are absolutely spot on. Will, you need to get on the phone and call Martin Jarman and tell him, look, man, these are the three to interview. Okay, let me do your job for you for a little bit because these are three great picks. I think those are just absolutely phenomenal. And you put them in there with kind of the earlier five that I mentioned. I think that's a really nice list of eight or nine candidates, Will, to be able to interview from to be able to get a really high-quality candidate. Yeah, man. And just for Penix, man, I mean, that last year in Indiana, he's coming off of injury. Four touchdowns, seven interceptions, nearly yep. a team turnover to one uh, ratio there. 53% passing. He comes to Washington his first year, 31 touchdowns, eight interceptions. So, I mean, they raised the game of Penix, man. For Grubb, sure. And, and DeBoer had a lot to do with that, you know, because yeah. he was lost when DeBoer left Indiana. He had some great, you know, he had a couple really good years at Indiana, and then DeBoer left, and he lost himself. And, and that's why he was waiting for, for DeBoer. He had said that, look, I, I don't care where I get, you know, selected in terms of the transfer portal. I'm waiting for DeBoer to get a job, and then that's where I'm going to pick it. So, to your point, Will, that lineage is really important. Yeah, absolutely, man. So big-time stuff there. I think we've nailed the coaching list. It's on UCLA at this point to reach out to those candidates and maybe get us our next head coach in Westwood. Madman, great to see you. Unfortunate loss, but the future can be bright if we choose to be that way. Get out, donate, guys. You know, Find a way to get part of these NIL collectives, and that's how we win here at UCLA. That is simple as that. Be involved. Be involved and get things done. Bruin Bible, we are officially out. We'll be on radio this week, ESPN Radio on Friday. Make sure to check it out later, guys.